0: Welcome to the Erasing Shame podcast, season one. This podcast is about erasing shame through honest talk for healthy living, emotionally, relationally, mentally, and personally. Visit our website at erasingshame.com for links to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe on iTunes and YouTube. Now, let's have an honest talk for healthy living. Welcome to the Racing Shame Podcast. My name is DJ Chuang, and on this episode, I'm joined with Dr. Lisa Chu, and she has been a huge fan of our podcast. She is an artist, a soul, body, and mind-life coach, a musician based in Half Moon Bay, California, which is right around San Francisco, I'm told. She grew up in Illinois, a little town called Libertyville, and spent her childhood touring the world as a violinist and pianist. I don't know how you do that at the same time, uh, and then graduated from Harvard in biochemical science, University of Michigan Medical School, and she's worked as a venture capitalist, violin school founder, life coach, sound healer, body worker, REI salesman, backpacking gear reviewer, organic farm hand illustrator, and acoustic rock violinist. Woo. That's a lot of life you've already lived. Um, we're so happy to have you here live in person, rather than just through, through text and comments. <laughs> so we'd love to hear your story. Um, how how did you go through life with all of that stuff and still have a part of you that uh, you had to make sense out of and leave a breadcrumb, as you would say?
1: So yeah, do, uh, do you wanna just dive into that or do you want me to share about, um, I'm, re- I'm all ready to talk about like my definition of shame, because I know that's. Oh, yeah.
0: Okay. Go ahead and do that. We've been using a very simple definition that shame is that you are bad or you're a mistake, versus guilt uh, being something that you've done wrong, like an action. Mm-hmm. So what would you add to that, Lisa?
1: Yeah. So it's, I've been thinking a lot about this question as I've been watching the podcast, because it's been very thought provoking. You know, what is it? What is shame? It's very elusive for me because um, for me, shame is everything I don't talk about Mm. things that I don't say. It's the things that I don't feel. It's the things that I trained myself not to think, feel and do out of a fear of losing love. Mm. So this is what I'm, you know, putting together for myself because yes, you described, I, you know, this laundry list of things that I've done in the world, which was one way that I learned to define who I am by what I do. So that's a learned response to life. It's not how we're born. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm noticing as I grapple with these feelings of you know, always wanting something without being able to name it, and always wanting to be somewhere else other than where I am, and really getting very curious about exploring that. Uh, where does that come from? What is it for me? Um, it, it is about this you know this learned response of disowning parts of myself
0: mm-hmm.
1: in order to feel safe and okay
0: mm.
1: in the world and that's shame anything that's disowned and put down into A box that cannot be opened or shown to anyone out of fear is what I experience as shame. That image of like something you put in a box in the basement and shove it in the back corner of a closet where you never want to see it and you don't want anyone else to see it either.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And most of, you know, we all have something like that. Mm Um, and we've learned how to get by in life without ever going down into that basement and looking in that box.
0: So in one sense, it's even farther, so it's even farther back, back than the skeleton in the closet.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I don't use those. Those. What does that mean to you? What does skeletons in the closet mean to you?
0: It's just a cliche I've heard. Uh, <laughs> typically, it's when, yeah. typically it's so, when someone uh, has a bad thing that they've done get um, outed and they call that a, a closet.
1: Yeah, so I mean, you'll, I will be speaking tonight. So first of all, I want to say that, you know, the reason I'm a huge fan of releasing Shake, uh is a podcast, is a space that you created with Eunice and Natalie um, is that it's such an honest space and it's so human and so real, and so personal, from what I've seen so far and heard. And these are spaces that are so rare, in my experience, in a media platform, where everything is typically highly produced and portrays some kind of varnished image of what we want things to be or what we think things should be, rather than how they actually are. And my experience with Healing, or having healing moments in my life, is when I can be experienced as I am, not as I believe I should be. Mm. So that's the value of any kind of a non-judgmental space. And so I will be speaking. You know, I think the opportunity for me tonight is to speak from my my own experience, and to stay away from general concepts or things that I've heard that don't mean anything to me personally, because I haven't connected with the experience of it. And, and I think that's also healing Mm -hmm. because I'll just say this about what I'm also like learning and uncovering about shame, particularly in Asian American cultures. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like really fascinating to me. Like, why do we, have this as something that we just assume is part of what we, part of our value system is shame in a way, Mm. that we kind of have to feel it or we're not good (laughs) enough. (laughs) um, And so another aspect of shame that I'm noticing is that it's a tool for keeping, so as long as you can keep people disowning parts of themselves, like actual honest experiences and feelings that they have, you can keep them hiding and in submission to an outer authority. Hmm. So if you notice, a lot of us have had childhood experiences where shame is used as a tool to gain control of another person's response to a situation. To either say you're not allowed to feel this, you're not allowed to say this, you're not allowed to do this because I say so. Mm-hmm. So then when so the child learns to put those things in a box. Okay, I won't. I won't feel that, I won't say that, I won't do that. If it's you know, if the if the per, if the personality or temperament of the child is to be sub, ob, obedient. Yeah,
0: that, that would be me. <laughs>
1: yeah, and obedience is another virtue in our culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That if you're obedient, you're good. If you're defiant, there's something wrong with you. We have to solve you your problem. So I'm just going to go back to like looking at our cultures, and I this is something that, you know. We don't have to go very far back in our culture to find oppression of people.
0: Mm.
1: Like China, thousands of years of a single emperor ruling, right? And then look at modern history, it's, it's been all about trying to dominate and control this large group of people mm. through many means, killing, threatening to kill, Silencing people, making people fear what they think and say, and and then in my lineage, there's also Taiwan, which was a colony. Mm-hmm. There has been a long history of colonialism there, but then recently, even just under my own grandparents, Japanese colonialism. So submission. So I'm just kind of putting these out there because I'm discovering that the seeds of shame come from a long line of history of people being shamed into submission Mm. by governments, by family members, by people, citizens, neighbors, And so it's not something very far away <laughs> or very distant. Mm. It's alive in the world, and it's alive mm. inside us. And it's like I said in my experience, it's elusive. It's it's like we don't even know it's there because it's everything we've denied. Mm. So the antidote. You're you know you're on this podcast. We're talking about how, what's the antidote to shame. And, you know, I'll borrow Brene Brown's words, shame thrives in secrecy and judgment. So by speaking about it and not judging what we feel shame about, we take away the nourishment of shame itself. And it takes courage. So what you're doing here by providing a space and naming this word is an act of, in a way, defiance in the face of shame. Just by saying, I see you, I name you, I claim you in me, and I also choose to transform you and to release your power over me. Yes. That, to me, is what you're saying with the relationship.
0: So with so, with that background, um, many <laughs> nations, many generations of shame yeah. that's been perpetuated. And there's a sense where our parents did their best parenting the way they were parented. Yes. So if they weren't parented in an emotionally healthy way that allowed us to be... Uh, Better in touch with our feelings and knowing what to do with them instead of just stuffing it down and behaving properly uh, feelings and emotions have a way of coming out sideways <laughs> yes and and some of that shows up in shame if it continues to fester so how has that shown up in your experience growing up in an Asian family um, Doing so yeah,
1: this is um, okay. So we were talking about different responses in the child to being shamed, and how, and I'll just speak about. Let's just say that shame is um, an, ex, an a reaction to trauma, mm. emotional trauma. So there's part of us that was hurt. Emotionally, the you know, at a very very young age, before we could verbalize, there was like a recoiling. There was a there was a sense of um, threat to to connection, and it, it, for an infant, connection is food. You so mm. we know now that it's not just the survival of the physical body. I don't know if any of you heard when you were growing up. Um, all you need for survival is food, shelter, and clothing. Well, now we know from neurobiology that an infant Requires touch and human facial connection in order to survive physically, mm. and to, you know to, for the body to develop in a healthy way. So that's a nuance that we now know from more years of observation. So, so how does this show up? So, there's when we're traumatized, just any trauma the body goes into the first response is fight or flight. The second response is shutting down. So we also know this from neurobiology now that the default state of humans is social engagement and connection. So mm-hmm. eye contact, facial expression, relaxation, nurturing, sharing food. These are, these are actually the default relaxed state of human beings. It's how we survive actually. When that is threatened, we go into fight or flight, and then we go into shutdown. So fight or flight is um, mobilizing resources, basically amping yourself up and starting to get fast. Just think about it that way. Like every, every response is fast, and you go as fast as you can until your body is depleted, and you have to go into shutdown, which is a freeze mode, and you're feigning death. That's the reptilian mm-hmm. response to threat to life it's in mm-hmm. all of us. So if you look at that, like I look at that, and to me, I see, for fight for fight or flight, I see achievement addiction, mm-hmm. basically success in most of the industries that we see, <laughs> um, available to us to be quote successful. That's a fight or flight sort of a mode, like everyone's yeah. running. We, we now hear about burnout on a large scale and across many industries. And to me, that's everyone sort of collectively running out of gas to do the fight or flight and getting into shutdown. And shutdown to me is sounds a lot like depression. Sounds a lot like the lows that people describe when they talk about their lows, it's like no motivation to do anything, just you know sleeping a lot, just no interest in anything, just dead to the world. So basically, my response, you look at my life, my response to the emotional traumas of growing up in a house where there was not only a lot of relational discord between my parents, but also raging, unpredictable Mm -hmm. raging. So my response, my personal response, and everyone in a family has a different response, right? My personal Mm -hmm. response was, there was a part of me that learned how to shut down and focus on violin and piano. Mm -hmm. Because I could do that. I could. I was blessed with the ability to tune in to what a teacher was saying and get it right. So, what on the outside what looked like praise and admiration and A pluses and one hundred percent on an academic level and like, oh, how do you do all these things? That's that was my response to a traumatic environment. Mm There was some interest also, but not in the way people from the outside look at me and say, oh, you must have been so passionate to pursue these things. It wasn't really like, at at the time I didn't know what I was, it was like, okay, but I knew in my heart that I wasn't really choosing these things. It was, I was just being a perfect student because that was a really good outlet for my attention. And I got amazing opportunities because of it. And so, you know, just kind of looking at the lot, this is, so what I'm talking about right now is I'm actually, some people will hear this as like, how can she be so ungrateful for all these things that she's accomplished? Like, why is she? so?" I just want to note that if that is a thought that's going through people's heads, that yes, that's, that's a, another layer of the shame that keeps us from the truth of our own experience. So right mm-hmm. now in my life, I'm going through this process of reclaiming my gifts, my strengths, and my true power, which is how I feel. Mm-hmm. So, so if I'm a someone else could have,
0: have, the have the same uh, accomplishments and behavior on the outside right. but, what but what goes on inside is totally so different. We yeah.
1: So we yeah. don't know. I mean that's another thing like that's that's the problem with only interacting with images of people. That we so we project when we see an image of someone we project our own story onto that person. That usually matches either an uncovered story of shame about ourselves, like "Oh gosh, she's so much better than me," or some kind of a defense. Um, the other, the opposite, which is like, "How could she be so? How could she be such a show off?" Like that kind of a thing. Mm. So we, or whatever, you know, everyone mm-hmm. has their own. But basically, noticing that whatever our response is to seeing an image of a person is from our own projection. It has nothing to do with what that person's actual experience
0: is. Hmm. Wow.
1: Now, like, like in the context of that, let's think about how some of us were raised, which is we had immigrant parents that they only saw television as their image of like what was going on in America. Cause we were pretty, I mean, I don't know. i We were isolated. We didn't have a lot of other Chinese American families to constantly interact with. We're surrounded by these people that we don't know how they live. We really don't. I mean, we're finding out every day, we think, but we only see the image at school, the image at work. You know, we're not close, we're not intimate with their their experience. So we like, we, we look for images because we're trying to learn how to adapt to this society. So we're watching television and we're seeing like the Miss America pageant. This is one from my dad. Like, you can be Miss America.
0: Hmm.
1: You can be Connie Chung. You can be, you know, like so looking, looking for examples of how you can be in the world, because that's all there is. That's so hmm. but then to to be the child, experiencing that sense of expectation and pressure to be somebody that gets on TV someday. <laughs> because that's the only image we have of what success hmm. might be. Um, there's a ton of disowning of true, you know, feeling and experience that has to be done to fit that. Like, how do I go and be all this stuff? How do I hold all of that? And then what do I have to ignore? of My own instincts and impulses and exploration, the freedom to explore. So part of this is just we're adults now. Okay so you know another thought track that might be going through people's minds as they listen to me is like she's 42 years old why doesn't she just get over her childhood already why is she still talking about it and I, i'm just <laughs> giving examples of my inner, inner critic but what i notice is that this shame that keeps things locked in the bu- in the basement in the box you can't outrun it, mm. it it is still it's because it was the the child it's the innocent child in us that we put in the box Hmm. it's the beauty it's our beauty it's our essence it's our soul that we put in the box and it's our greatest gift that we have to offer in this life that we put in the box
0: hmm that's profound
1: it's our uniqueness we put that in the box and i'm talking and i i talk from my own experience and i talk also from the experience of working with clients you know life coaching clients that well you know we're, we're trying to find the box we're trying to let the you know and inside the box is a very frightened mm-hmm. frightened individual that maybe never got tenderness
0: Well, let's talk about two things in the time we have on this episode. So what happened in your life uh, while you were going the route of uh, basic accomplishments and doing well and all of that, that you would begin to explore this box of your internal um, rhythms and energy? Yes. You could become more uh, in touch with that rather than ignoring that?
1: So I have to, I mean, part of it is birth order. I'm the younger younger sibling and I had a very protective older brother. Hmm. So protective in terms of, I think when I was born, he saw the innocence and he really wanted to make sure that it wasn't crushed. So he did everything that he could to kind of me that shield in a way and um so when i when i went to med so for me it's like the transaction that i had to fulfill in my life was get a medical degree if i got a medical degree then maybe i would be left alone to f- do what i wanted to do in my life mm. that was my equation in my mind that if i just do this then i'll be free but then I got into medical school, and I re- looked around. I'm like, "What can I actually do that I can stomach, you know, for some period of time?" Because the entire mindset of that of that industry is something that I, I, I have, I just have real. I, it's not aligned. It's not aligned with how I see the world, and how I see health, and how I see human beings. So yeah. I couldn't stomach working in that environment really any much much longer and that was it was like a wake-up moment where i got there and i'm like i I don't know i did wake up one day and i said wow i don't have to i don't have to do a residency like everyone else is It was um it was and, and I actually did call my brother, and he said, You're right, and if you don't, you shouldn't. If you don't want to do it, you shouldn't. So I did have that support, and I know that that was important to help help me in those moments where it would be very easy to think to feel insane for thinking something so different from the people around you. So if you notice that these worlds that I was in, medicine venture capital, uh, classical music, they're all very collectivist type of kind of like their group mentality kind of worlds, like where it's not about expression, it's about succeeding at a certain game with certain rules. Um, So to think a different thought in a culture like that is very dangerous in terms of you're not going to be accepted. You're not going to fit in anymore. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So every time, and I've, I've made that leap many times now in my life. And I'll just say that it's come in the form of like listening to a, an inner voice. That's different from the critic. You know, the critic is pretty loud and fast inside our heads, but for me, the small inner voice of, what i'll say is my intuitive guidance is like quiet, persistent, but like sometimes only comes as this little whisper like and then it's like, "Really?" It sounds like a really crazy idea at the time because it's it's not rational. But it's like to me it's it's somebody knocking on the door from inside that box like, mm-hmm. "Ready to come out? This is how it this is how you let me out." It's like little instructions that are completely irrational. So like, you know, it's never makes any sense financially or, you know, there's a lot of relationships that have to be dissolved in the process and, you know, new boundaries have to be set all the Mm. time. It's always, it's, but it's always, so it's pointing me to my next level of growth and depth and and bravery because I have to face a fear. And every time I face a fear and sit in my fear, I'm less afraid mm. of fear. Mm-hmm. And I'm able to sit with other people in their fear and not freak out, which is basically, you know, the summary of, of you know, Asian American parenting is fear, mm. something, you know, Everyone has a story of what the fear is, but it's basically fear. Fear and love mixed together in a very confusing concoction. And we spend our lives trying to sort it out. And it's the human, it's the human condition too. It's not just an Asian American thing. It's, it's, you know, it's how we grow and develop into individual humans.
0: Yeah. And I would add there's, um, it's a human thing, but there's a certain Asian flavor to it when we're in an Asian context. Uh, So having gone through what you've gone through, all kinds of careers, all kinds of paths, where does that leave you now? Are you finding your own voice in strength and, um, courage to really live a vibrant and flourishing life?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, um, yes. And I think if I were to summarize, you know, what's been the thread that has, has pulled me. Um, it's been the arts and creativity, and mm. not like the um, so <laughs> not like the the top down approach of go and learn all these techniques and become this try to become this master artist that looks like the people in the museum, which is a kind of the rules based top down approach that many people think of as art. I'm talking about what's the, what's the original expression that comes from within you when you're given total freedom. And I have been, that's basically been my work of the last nine years of my life, starting with improvisation, music improvisation, visual art, now most recently with drama, um, drama therapy, <clears throat> creating autobiographical therapeutic performance. And that was just this past weekend, actually, that I created my first piece. And I'm going to be creating a full-length piece for this October in San Francisco um, with guidance from a drama therapist and with a group of other people doing the same thing. And those kinds of experiences for me, when I've been able to be in a group of witnesses, reparative witnesses is a way to say it, but witnesses who are sitting in their own process, not judging and also working through their own freedom of expression. Those have been the biggest healing experiences for me personally to access these new, not new, but always there, but kind of, disowned parts of myself and bring them and give them a voice and give them a transformative voice through the arts, through storytelling and through movement and a whole body, you know, embodied expression. So that's really where I am right now. And I'm bringing that also into my work with coaching. My coaching is becoming much more embodied, not just talk, but using drama and action methods to release feelings and expressions through the body so it's um it's fun and uh, (laughs) and um and i also feel closer to my true contribution Mm. you know to to others by Mm. doing this so it's really amazing that my own process feeds work that i can share with people who are really suffering uh, and I know the suffering because I am walking it my, I, you know I know my suffering, and i'm open to being with others suffering so that's where I am.
0: Well, thank you so much. Thank you for going through that journey, sharing a bit of that with us, and helping others to uh, find the courage and the support and the care in the uh, process to finding their voice and their expression and their unique contribution in the world. What's the best way for people to connect with you? I know you've shared a ton of resources with us, which I'll add into the show notes uh, with this episode, but uh, what's the best way for someone to connect with you to uh, perhaps approach you for life coaching or to learn more about your story?
1: Oh, sure. That, so that, my life coaching website is the music within And That's probably the best place to start um, if you want to get in touch with
0: me. Dr. Lisa Chu, thank you so much and helping all of us to find the music within us.
1: (laughs) Thank you, DJ, Um, and keep up the great work. This is a really beautiful space that you're creating, and I'm so honored to be part of it.
0: Thank you, Lisa. And for listeners and viewers, uh, stay in touch with us at ErasingShame.com. Subscribe to our YouTube feed, iTunes, and like our Facebook page. Until next week, we'll say bye-bye. Thank you, Lisa.
1: Bye. Thank you.